Evening family, today's Bible reading is going to be taken from Romans 3, verses 21 to 31. Romans 3, verses 21 to 31, and it reads as follows. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, um, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good evening. Once again, it's good to be together. Uh, it's good to come and hear from God's word. Uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, uh, well, welcome to you, either online or here. Uh, it's good to have you here with us. Uh, just to let you know, um, if you're new, or perhaps you haven't been here for a few weeks, uh, we have been doing a series in Romans, as Molina said earlier. And this is a series we have titled, A New Humanity. Now I'm just going to ask you to consider, uh, in the course of the week, to just go and listen to um, the other summaries we've done in this series. But to bring you up to speed, there's a summary statement that Molina read for us a bit earlier that I'm going to read for us, and then thereafter just say a few things, and then we will uh, pray and get to God's word. By the way, my name is Reggie, if you um, do not know who I am. Uh, let, me, let me then read this summary statement uh, for us. In Romans, it should be right there today. It should be there. <laughs> In Romans, we see how God is gathering a new humanity uh, to himself under Jesus' king. Empowered by the Spirit to be agents of change in this broken world as they await the renewal and restoration of their bodies and of the world. Now for the last few weeks we have spent quite a lot of time in the first part of that statement. We see God, a God who is gathering a new humanity to himself under King Jesus. And we'll continue to spend some time doing that. We will get to a point where we unpack the rest of this statement. Something else you would have heard me say in the last few weeks is that Romans is a bit like Jenga. You heard me say that last week. Um, I'm surprised that none of you actually tried to go and take out the three bottom pieces. I think you, you figured out why, right? Uh, if you remove the bottom pieces, the whole thing falls apart. Here's what a lot of people have said about today's passage. Last week you heard me say, Paul, all throughout this letter, tells us what his gospel is, and all the pieces that are part of this gospel are important. But today's section is what has often been called foundational to this gospel. 
See, if you move them, the whole thing falls apart, like that piece. So how about I pray for us as we come to God's word and see this very gospel. Our Father, we do pray that as we come to your words today, that you would not only show us our desperate need for you, but that you would show us that you have made a way for us to be made right with you, to be freed from punishment, but to also be freed from our slavery to sin, so that we are gathered up into your family as your own people, this new humanity that you are creating. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. If there is a God, dot, 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 left says you can fill out the rest of that statement. Now, this conversation here, just like the one we had last week, a conversation about whether humanity is good or bad, the, the conversation on the existence of God and what his character is like is a conversation that people have had for years. What is this God like? If, if there is a God, what is, it? What, what is he like? Now, more often than not, the way that people fill out the rest of that statement tells you what they think about God and how he is running the world. It tells you what they think of God and how he is running the world. If there is a God, some would say, he's a dictator. He's like Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler. He is like Kim Jong-un. Or Aladdin. Uh, a few of you know who Aladdin is. He is oppressive. He's angry, he's controlling, and he is toxic. He's all about himself. He's narcissistic. If there is a God, then he is like that. You heard Molina a bit earlier talking about that we would be talking about this during outreach. But that's one of the things people would say. If there is a God, he is like that. Others would say, if there is a God, then he is a benevolent. Or, gray, or, or, or kind grandfather. See, he, he just wants to shower you with good gifts, good things, sweets, even when you have been bad. See, see, he's always good. He just wants to cuddle you and play with your chicks. He's nice. He's a good God. He's the kind of God who turns a blind eye to your wrongdoing. Others would say, if there is a God, then this God is a terrible Landlord, a.k.a. Mustandi. He is always unavailable when you call a subscriber. Or he just doesn't show up when things go wrong or break. See, he goes MIA. He is missing in action. See, what all of these views tell you, the kind of uh, uh, picture of God they paint for you, is a picture of a God who's lost control of the world. A lost God. In a lost world. And you see, here's the thing about this kind of God. This kind of God can have no solution, or we can't trust his solution to sin and evil that has enslaved humanity and destroyed the world. See, this God cannot have a solution together. A people whom we know are rebellious, a people who have turned away from him. He cannot gather those people to himself to bless them while he himself remains righteous and good. He can't. For this kind of God, this is mission impossible. He can't pull off an Ethan Hunt. For this kind of God. But you see, the God of the Bible, 
The God of the Bible is different. See, the God of Christianity is different. He is other. Moreover, what we see about this God is that from time immemorial, he has had a plan. He has had a plan to put humanity and to put the world to rights. See, this God of ages has always had an answer to a world gone wrong. And today we will see that, how God deals with a world that has gone wrong. What is his answer, his solution to a world that has gone wrong? And what we will see is that this God puts right those who have turned away from him. He redeems them. He redeems and blesses a sinful and rebellious people while he himself remains righteous and good. Now your question at this moment should be, how can it be? How can it be? How can it be that those who have caused God such great pain would gain so much from him? How can God justify those who are unrighteous? How can he call good those who are bad? How can he do this? Surely that would make God himself wrong for making right to people who are not. See, all of us would frown upon a judge who would act in this way. But as we come to our passage today, Paul will show us that this is possible. It is possible because there is good news. There's good news of a God. And there are no ifs and buts about this. There's a God who in his faithfulness provides his long-promised solution to the problem of the world, to the problem of humanity. Actually, the problem that is caused by humanity. There's a God who has a solution to all of this. Today, I only have one point. Now I can see a few of you celebrating because of that. One point. I mentioned it last week. Here's the point. Faithfulness. That's our point today. One point. And we'll spend most of our time between verse 21 and 26. I'll talk a bit about verse 27 to the end. But verse 27 to the end is really a springboard for us to look at chapter 4 next week. Now let me say a few things. Before we go into our, into our point, there are a few things that I'd like to say to you, just as a heads up. As we go through this passage today, we'll come across a few verses that if you read them in different translations, they would seem to be saying more than one thing. It would seem that they're saying two things. Now let me say this to you. If we see that in our passage, I would encourage us to take both things. I'm sure you found yourself in that moment at a wedding or if you know, you walk up to that person who's dishing up the food and they ask, chicken or beef? <laughs> At the most time, you want to say, okay, can I have both? Okay, can, I'd, I'd love to have both. I know for the most time, I've always wanted to say, can I have both? Chicken or beef? In today's passage, I will encourage us to consider both. There will be a few things we'll see from our passages, and I'll ask us to consider both, because they'll give us a great picture of what God is doing. One point, let's go into it, faithfulness, and I'll read for us. Let me read from verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift and through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for now. 
Now, as we go through this passage, to truly understand the faithfulness of this God who comes together a people to himself, there are a few words that I would like to point out to us that will help us understand the passage. But before we get to those words, let me start with the words you see at the beginning of the passage. But now. But now. See, some have called these words the two greatest words in the Bible, but now or but God. Because these words tell you that there is a turning point in God's story with humanity. There is a turning point with God's story with his world. See, God is about to do something different. He's about to do something new. But now. You and I are used to uh, the word but and how but functions. We, we know that when there's a but, it's a turning point. Uh, you have probably received messages or you have sent messages or emails where you start with all the niceties. Hi, I hope this finds you well. But, we know the but is a turning point. There's a turning point here in God's story with humanity. And I want you to see what this turning point is like. Because we've got to consider it. What is this turning point? A lot of people have often said when they look at that, but now, or when they think about the God of the New Testament, they will say, But now God is acting in kindness towards us. But previously, he has not. If you look at the Old Covenant, if you look at the God of the Old Testament, some people would say that is an angry God. But as you come to the New Testament, you find a much more gracious and loving God. Some would even say, the Father is angry. But what we will see now is that Jesus is the one who is kind. But that's actually missing the point. If you were here this morning, you would have heard it from our sermon from Royden as well. I would encourage you to go and watch that very sermon. This word, but now, what does it say? See, what it wants to show us is that God is acting in a new and different way. But what, is it, what it is not saying, it is not saying God in the Old Testament has acted in anger. And it could be easy to consider that when you read chapter 1, verse 18. It could be easy to think that God in the Old Testament acts in anger, but now that Jesus has showed up, God acts in grace and kindness. That's not true. So the God of the Bible is the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, he's true to his character. When you read the Old Testament, you realize that he is gracious to his people. He always acts towards them in kindness because that's what his character is like. But often what you see with the people is that the people rebel. And after they've rebelled, they find themselves enslaved by all kinds of evil. And so this God, as promised, he punishes them for going off track or off the rails. And when they cry out to this God, he comes to redeem them. If you read the whole Old Testament, you will see this cycle over and again. God is kind to his people. He's always been kind. He acts in that way. His people rebel. God punishes them for for going for going off the rails. They cry out to him, and he steps in to rescue them. So the God of the Bible... God has always been kind. God has always been true to his word, a God who will not let sin go unpunished as well. See, as you read the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, what you will realize, it will feel as though you are watching the old version or reading the old version of Vantage Point or Groundhog Day. One cycle over and again. What Paul wants us to see here is, but now, God will act differently. There's something new that God is doing here. God will redeem humanity. This is history's great turning point. 
And this is why it needs to be history's great turning point. Last week you heard me saying that because humanity has been rebellious towards God, what they deserve is his just punishment for that. But what we also saw last week is that humanity finds themselves enslaved by sin. But what we will see here is God acts to free us from his judgment. And he acts to free us from being enslaved by sin. As we go through this passage, we will see that, but now, but now God will act uh, in a new way to liberate his people uh, from slavery to sin and liberate them from his coming judgment. But now, God will act decisively. So let's consider what this intervention from God is like. Because here's the thing about this intervention that God brings. This intervention is a period in history. It's not a comma. It's a period. God has intervened once and for all. So let's consider this intervention. Again, hear me. Beef or chicken? Take both. Let's read together. Let's continue our phrase. But now, Paul tells us, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's stop there for now. There's the first phrase I want us to consider. The righteousness of God has been made known. It has been manifested. Now, it's worthwhile for us to consider what does this word righteousness mean? In the Old Testament, it refers to a number of things. But let me point to two that uh, relate to God and his character. One, this phrase tells us about God's character, that God is always morally upright and that he is true to his word. He's true to his word. But it also tells us about his action in salvation, his action in saving people. And so righteousness relates to God's character. And it also relates to his saving faith. And so here's the first, chicken or beef. If you read it in the ESV, it will say, the righteousness of God. But if you read it in the NIV, it will say, the righteousness from God has been made known. What is Paul telling us? Is it the righteousness of God or the righteousness that comes from God? One is displayed and one is granted. Again, let's consider it as being both. Here's a quote from Uh, someone called Tim Keller, you've probably heard of him. Listen to what he says, going back to chapter 1, verse 17, talking about this righteousness. He says the gospel, which is the good news of God's intervention in human history. The gospel as we know it in 117 and 321 reveals the righteousness of God. The ESV puts it that way. Oh, a righteousness from God, the NIV. See, this is both a righteousness that is displayed, but it is also a righteousness that is granted. God shows his righteousness, his righteous character in saving. But one of the things we will truly see is that God actually grants this righteousness to those who believe. We will see that he grants this righteousness because of Jesus. He grants it to us so that we will be made right with him. It is a righteousness displayed, but it is also a righteousness that is granted. See, in this decisive moment in human history, God fulfills his promises to make us right with him by both displaying his righteousness and actually granting his righteousness to us. This is why this is good news. It's good news to us, who you remember last week, are unrighteous and cannot get right with God on our own way. See, we're rebellious, but we also don't have the ability to make ourselves right with God. And so this is good news that this God 
can reckon us, can credit to us, he can make us righteous or right with him. Listen to this quote from another author, and this is what he says, pointing to this very gospel and why it is good news. It is good news because God grants his righteousness to us. He saves us, or he declares us right. But it is good news because in God doing that, God still remains as being righteous. Listen to these very words. There can be no gospel unless there is such a thing as the righteousness of God for the ungodly. Unless there's such a thing as a righteousness of God for the ungodly. But just as little can there be any gospel unless the integrity of God's character be maintained. So God needs to make us right with him. He needs to save us, but still remain righteous. So how will he do this? How does he do this? Well, what we see in the passage or in this very, in this very Um, uh, verses before us, is that God does this through Jesus. See, God through Jesus is able to declare us as being right. He grants us his his righteousness. See, those who are unrighteous are able to be reckoned as being right with God because Jesus has lived in a particular way because God has shown his righteousness in this Jesus. And I want you to see as you read through the verse that this righteousness is given to those who receive it freely as a gift. It is granted to them. It is a righteousness that requires no effort or merit. And it is a righteousness that is not exclusively kept to the Jews. See, the biggest problem with the Jews wasn't just that they were legalistic. They thought of their own way of making their way to God. But their problem was that they did not want, they thought that God was all about them. They did did not think that God's mission was for the rest of the world. See, this righteousness is granted To all, that's what Paul says over and again, to all who believe in this Jesus, whether they're Jew or Gentile. It is a righteousness that God grants without any accusations of any meanders or any shenanigans. They're not shenanigans. God is able to grant this righteousness and still remain true to himself. Now, I'll talk a little bit about that when we come to the how he grants it to us. But let me just say, for us to actually receive this righteousness, when we receive it, this is what it means for us. It means that God credits the righteousness of Jesus into our account. So it's a righteousness we do not have, but God credits it into our account as though it was ours. So although you and I are guilty and deserve God's punishment, God declares us as being not guilty as being right with him. Now, again, I said I'll explain that in a short while. But here's the thing. You and I should realize that the famous line from OJ and the people does not actually apply to us. If it does not fit, you must not acquit. It does not apply to us because the crime we have done, sin, actually does fit with us. But there's one who has taken the punishment on our behalf. And gives us this righteousness freely when we receive it. That's the first word, righteousness. The second word is redemption. The first word tells us how God declares us right with him so that we can be, uh, uh, so that we can be forgiven of sin and so that we don't have to face his punishment. The second word is redemption from verse 24 that you see there. 
The idea of redemption that you see in verse 24 speaks of uh, buying back someone to bring back someone from, from destruction, to restore them. See, this was often used to talk about someone who was saved or bought back from debt slavery. Now, debt slavery is if someone had actually borrowed money or anything from someone that they worked with, that they worked for, and could not pay them back. And so that person would actually owe the person who has given them whatever resource it was. So that person would become, in one sense, enslaved to the person. They'd have to work for the person unless someone comes in and buys them. And for the most time, these people could not buy themselves. The idea of redemption there gives you the picture of you and I standing on a stall or standing on a stage, unable to redeem or buy ourselves back until God actually steps in to buy us. If you have gone to a pawn shop where you have given them a valuable item of yours, perhaps it's a phone, and then you say to them, I'll come back, well, they give you a bit of money, and then you say you'll come back and redeem that very thing. This is the idea that we see here, that God actually comes back for his people and buys them back. He redeems them. It's the idea that you see in the movie Django, where a guy called King Schultz buys Django. He buys his freedom so that Django is no longer in debt to slavery. And you see, these are the kind of words actually Paul uses in Romans 6 and Romans 8. Paul says to us, you and I no longer owe a debt to sin. The kind of debt we owe now is to God. So we should not give ourselves to sin. We should not give the members of ourselves to sin. Because God has now bought us. He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us and made us his very own. So two things. God has declared us right. And he has redeemed us. He has bought us back. Now how does God do this? Without actually, well, while actually remaining righteous. How does he do this? Well, let me uh, propose two phrases to you. And the first phrase in, is in verse 22. Listen to what the verse says to us. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. That's the first one. I'll point, out, uh, I'll point it out to us from a different translation. And the second word that I want us to think about, about The how God actually buys us or declares us as being right with him is actually in verse 25, and it is the word propitiation. So two words, or two phrases I'd like us to think about. The first one is that idea of faith in Jesus, and the second one is propitiation. Now let me give you a different translation of that very phrase, faith in Jesus. Others have actually said, and this is a correct translation as well, Remember, I said chicken or beef, take both. Others have read that very translation as being saying, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus for all who believe. It is the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus for all who believe. It is right to actually translate that passage as that. See, Jesus is the only one we see as we read through the scriptures who has been faithful to God. He's the only one who actually fits the category from, from the words we looked at last week. He's the only one who seeks God. He's the only one who is righteous. He's, only, he's the only one who does good. He's the only one who obeys, God's, who obeys God's will to the end. He's the only one who's never turned aside. See, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when there is a great temptation to turn aside, he doesn't. He's the only one who's faithful to the Father. And he's the only one, if you remember last week, whose words and actions actually match with the will of the Father. He's the only one whose words and actions are rooted in God's word, whose actions are rooted in the oracles from God. He's the only one. He's the true Israelite. He's the only one who has lived 
in the way that God has called all humanity, not just the Israelites, to live. And the one thing we see about this Jesus, now let me tie that phrase, the faithfulness of Jesus, to the word propitiation. This Jesus is actually faithful to the Father, to the point of death. Philippians 2, we are told of that very thing, that this Jesus is faithful. He's obedient to the point of death. Romans 5 verse 19 tells us of how through one man's obedience, sin came into the world and how eternal life came through the obedience, the faithfulness of one man. And this Jesus was faithful to God until the very end, until giving up his life, which is what we get to with that word, propitiation. This Jesus is faithful to the Father to even act or to be presented or to be put forward as a propitiation. That's a big word. But you're probably thinking, what does it mean? Well, let me give you another chicken or beef moment here. I think there's actually another way to read that very phrase. If you go to the NIV, it proposes a different word, which is atoning sacrifice. If you read another translation, it will say a place of mercy or the mercy seat. Now, again, the people who write or do all these translations know what they're doing, and they're pretty good at it. And so I would advise us to consider all the words that they're saying to understand what God does for us. See, this is the first thing I wanted to point to us. Jesus' death acts as a propitiation. That means Jesus' death is a wrath-averting sacrifice. See, everyone deserved judgment from God. They deserved God's anger. But Jesus, because of his death, turns away or turns aside God's anger from us. Rather, he takes it upon himself. That's the first thing about that word. But there's a different phrase that others have, have proposed from the word atoning sacrifice. They have said the word here that we should think of is Jesus being a sin-removing sacrifice. He's a sin-removing sacrifice and a favor-returning sacrifice. If you think of Leviticus, the two animals that are sacrificed, or one animal that is sacrificed, whose sins, the sins of the people, are put on this animal. And then there's one animal that takes the sins of the people out of the camp. Jesus does exactly that. He takes the sin of the people out of the camp so that the favor of God would return. He is a sin-removing, and he is a favor-returning uh, sacrifice. Here's the last thing. He is a ransoming sacrifice. You and I were slaves to sin, as you saw last week. We were puppets. We were praised to sin. But Jesus' death ransoms us. It buys us back. This is how God declares us as being right with him. And this is how he buys us back. Jesus gives up his life. The Father puts him forward as a wrath-averting sacrifice, as a sin-removing and favor-returning sacrifice, as a ransoming sacrifice. See, through Jesus, we can sing the words we sang earlier. We can say we are free. Forever we're free. Indeed, we are free. We are free from God's judgment, which Jesus has averted. But we're also freed from our slavery to sin, which is something Paul continues to explore as you go on to Romans chapter 5, all the way up to chapter 8. This is what Jesus does for us. He buys us back. And when Jesus buys us back, this is what he does. He achieves his victory over sin and evil and death. So that, as we said in chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 6, he is crowned as king. So this king achieves his victory over sin so that he's able to buy back God's people. He has arrested 
the punishment that we deserved. He has arrested sin. He has arrested death. And he has arrested the power of sin from our lives. And so the very next words are a quote from another author who gets us to realize what Jesus has done for us. So what Jesus has done for us is to bear the weight of our sin so that we can be made right with God. It is through Jesus' faithful obedience that we are made right with God. Listen to this quote. The faithful death of the Messiah unveils before an unready and shocked world the way in which, in which the true, the one true God has to be true to the covenant and has thereby provided the answer to a world gone wrong and to humans lost in sin and guilt. So this was what God does for us. He redeems us. He brings us back to himself. And we are made right because of the faithfulness of Jesus, a faithfulness that he shows to the point of death. Now, how do we receive this very gift from God? Let me go back to that very, uh, very verse, verse 22, to propose a different way to read it, as we see in the NIV, in the ASV. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Now, Paul does something here. He tells us that one, all unrighteous and all have fallen of God's standard. But he also tells us that all are able to receive this gift from God when they put their faith in Jesus. See, nothing else can allow us to receive this gift. There's no amount of effort or merit that you can do to receive this gift. It is a free gift from God. The only way we can be liberated from punishment and even slavery to sin is because of what God has done. It's about receiving his gift, his free gift, through faith in Jesus. But let me say this. Because I know you and I attempted to get lost here. Sin, or rather faith, is just an instrument for us to receive this gift. Let me say it again. Faith is an instrument for us to receive this gift. Faith is not the cause or the reason why you are made right with God. Faith is not the cause or the reason why God justifies you or makes you right or liberates you from sin. It's not the reason. It's an instrument through which you, are actually, uh, which you actually receive this gift. Listen to this quote, and I'll elaborate on it just a little bit later. Listen to what these words say. This is from Tim Keller. He says, it is not faith that saves. And now that sounds strange. You might think it sounds heretic, but it's not. It is not faith that saves. Rather, it is faith in Jesus, the one who is the object of our faith. It is faith in Jesus that saves and it is faith in his faithfulness. And the reason why we need to see this is so that when you and I find ourselves at a time where we feel like our faith is weak or strong, that we do not, when our faith is weak, start doubting this gift that God has given us. Or when we feel that our faith is strong, we do not start boasting or become proud and think we have earned it. See, faith does not save us. It is the instrument by which we receive this gift. It is rather the one who is the object of our faith who saves us and his faithfulness. The reason why I want you to see this is because if you, make, if you think faith is the reason why you are saved, it will crush you. It will crush you in the moments where you feel like your faith is wavering. And again, it will make you proud and boastful. And let me tell you this, you will look down on those whose faith is supposedly weak. Faith is not what saves us. Rather, it is faith in the one who is the object of our faith. 
and his faithfulness. Listen to, once again, Tim Keller saying this. If you come to think that your belief is the cause of your salvation, you will stop looking to Jesus or Christ and start looking at your faith. When you see doubt, it will rattle you. When you don't feel it quite as clearly and excitedly, it will worry you. What has happened? You have turned your faith into work. Faith is only the instrument by which you receive your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. It's not the cause of your salvation. It is the instrument by which you receive God's free gift. So don't do it. Don't get to a point where you think your faith is the reason why God has saved you. It is the one who is the object of your faith and his faithfulness. Listen to Tim Keller once again. This time he is quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, who actually coined that phrase, but God, and said it is the greatest words, or some of the greatest words in the Bible. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. The man who has faith is the man who no longer is looking to himself. And the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he was, he once was. He does not look at what he, he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. See, Paul is calling us to put our faith in Jesus' finished work on our behalf. Nothing else we require but this. If you remember the words of Ephesians, Ephesians 2 actually says, even the faith we have is a gift from God. So we must remember these very words. So in the times of struggling with sin, we come back to this. We look to the one who is the object of our faith. Let me close with this. Why does God do all of this? Well, this is what we see in verse 25. God puts Jesus as the propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine, divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the, of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, God does this to prove his faithfulness. To prove that from the beginning of time, he made a promise through Abraham, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, to redeem humanity. And this is a promise that God keeps here. A promise that God keeps despite his people not keeping what is considered to be another covenant in the Old Testament, a Mosaic covenant. God keeps his word even when his people did not. He's faithful and true to his word to redeem his people. And at the cross, what we see is his faithfulness. At the cross, what we see is love and justice meeting together. We see God's justice being fulfilled, but we also see his justifying love. See, there are no ifs or buts about this God. There is a God who wants to gather us to himself, and he wants to gather us to himself to prove his faithfulness, to prove that he is the only and one true God. Now I would call you to rest in him, and his gospel. His gospel that we know is a mighty working of God. A mighty working of God. Even in human rebellion and human inability. 
This is the great news of the gospel. You don't have to do anything to merit it. Let me pray for us. Father, would you help us to see this truth and that we would live it. Amen.